You can be seated. Good morning, everyone. It is wonderful to be here with you all. And Dave said basically everything I was going to say in my intro. (laughs) But it's an honor and privilege to be here with you all and to share God's word with you this morning. Today we'll be in Psalm 2, so if you'd like to flip there in your Bibles or on your phone, whatever uh, applies to you. In Psalm 2, before we dive into that, I'll just pray again and ask for God's help. God, I know that uh, nothing I say will be of any eternal value unless you apply your spirit to the word today and bring it to the hearers. And so I pray you'd open our eyes to behold wondrous things in your law. Amen. So, once again, we're in Psalm 2. And some people might ask, why the Psalms? Why are they worth studying? Why would we be in the Psalms today? Well, first of all, the Psalms are a part of God's Word. And that should be reason enough. They're in God's Word for us. We know that all Scripture is profitable for us. But I would also argue that the Psalms are a unique part of God's Word. They're a unique part of God's Word. Martin Luther called the book of Psalms a little Bible, a little Bible where everything in the Bible is beautifully and briefly expressed. So it's like a little beautiful summary of the Bible in poetic or psalm song form. So before I dive into the psalm, I'd like to give just three reasons quickly why I think we should be immersed in the psalms in our daily lives as a church and as individuals, why we should just want to soak in the psalms. Number one, the Psalms teach us how to pray. When you read a Psalm, you'll see that many of them are literally conversations with God. They're they're meant to be prayed. When you read the Psalms, God speaks to us. And when we pray the Psalms or sing the Psalms back, we speak back to God. If you're struggling in your prayer life, like all of us do, none of us have perfect prayer lives, right? We all want to grow in that area. I'd encourage you to go to the Psalms. You can just read them. They're meant to be prayed. Two, the Psalms teach us how to worship. They teach us how to worship. The book of Psalms was the songbook of Israel. It's what they used for their public worship gatherings. And it's made up of praises and laments, imprecations, and everything in between. This shows us that true worship isn't just something you do when you're happy, right? Think of Jesus quoting Psalm 22 on the cross, crying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The Psalms teach us that worship is for all circumstances or to be worshiping. And three, the Psalms point us to Jesus. The Psalms point us to Jesus. Not only did Jesus quote the Psalms more than any other book in the Old Testament, he also explicitly tells us that the Psalms talk about him. The Psalms talk about Jesus. In Luke 24, Jesus says, Everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets 
and the Psalms must be fulfilled. So it's on the road to Emmaus, and he gives that amazing Bible study that I wish I was a part of. He opens the eyes of the disciples to all the things in the word that speak about him. He says, the Psalms speak about me. So, the Psalms teach us to pray, they teach us to worship, and they teach us about Jesus. And this Psalm in particular, Psalm 2, points us to Jesus and shows how God demonstrates his sovereignty over human sin. This psalm answers the question, how God demonstrates his sovereignty over human sin. What's his response to human sin? Which, for you and I, as sinners, is important for us to know. So I'd actually ask you to stand again, sorry, in honor of God's word. It's not too hard for us, I think, right? So read Psalm 2. This is God's word. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. He holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his fury and terrify them in his wrath, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. You can be seated. So, once again... This psalm is answering the question, how God demonstrates his sovereignty over human sin. You can think of that as a sort of guiding question that this psalm will answer in a number of ways. And I think it answers that question in in four ways, in four parts. First, we see God's sovereignty over sin demonstrated in that he allows mankind to rebel. He allows mankind to rebel. That's worth thinking about for a second, that he actually allows that. Look again at verses 1 through 3 with me. It says, Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. Anointed means Messiah. Saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. In the immediate context of this psalm, this is the voice of the wicked kings and rulers around Israel that were oppressing the people of God. But this is also the voice of all human rebellion. 
all the way back from the first sin of man in the garden until now with each one of us. Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. This is the idea that God's rules are like chains. His commandments are like oppressive restraints on us that we need to cast off. Is this not also the voice of each one of us when we sin, when we rebel against God? We all must realize that deep down, when we sin, we all sound like this. It's like when you hear yourself on video for the first time and you can't stand the sound of your own voice. That's how we sound. We often sound like this to God. That sort of disgust, and much more, is what we must feel about our own sin. So the psalm not only condemns the wicked rulers of that time, but it calls all of us to examine ourselves today. Where am I trying to cast off God's restraints in my life? Where am I trying to break the bonds that he has over me? These verses tell us that the rage of human rebellion is in vain. And it's in vain because of the sovereignty of God. He's allowing all of it to take place. And we know that God doesn't sin, but he sinlessly uses our sin for his glory. This is why the rebellion of humanity is in vain, because the Lord will use it all, ultimately, for his purposes. The folly of human rebellion is demonstrated ultimately in the cross of Christ. We see the early church in Acts actually pray this psalm, Psalm 2. They pray this psalm. They pray this to God in Acts chapter 4, starting in verse 24. The early Christians pray, Sovereign Lord, who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. That's how you start a prayer, by the way. <laughs> who through the mouth of your of our father, David, your servant, who said by the Holy Spirit, and then they quote Psalm 2, our, our psalm for today. Why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. This passage illustrates the great twin truths in Scripture of both God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. Human beings are, on the one hand, 100% responsible for the choices that they make, and at the same time, all of those choices are a part of God's sovereign plan. The cross is the ultimate example of this. This is the, the greatest act of human evil ever committed. Yet, God used it for the salvation of the world. I think of my own life, and I think many of, of us who've walked with the Lord could attest to this, I could recall times in our life in which God has used our failures and our sin for his purposes, to help others, perhaps. 
In fact, I think it's precisely when the Lord has allowed me to wander away from him. And then it brought me back. That I've seen his control in my life demonstrated most clearly. That I see his sovereignty clearest. When he allows human rebellion. Again, God does not sin, nor, nor does he want us to sin. But he uses our sin for his glory. Secondly, God's sovereignty over sin is demonstrated by him establishing his king. By him establishing his king. Look again at verses 4 through 6. He who sits in the heavens laughs. Can you imagine that? You know that our God laughs. It's an interesting, we, we don't usually hear that. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision, or he scoffs at them, you could say. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. These verses here tell us that God has confidently resolved to answer the rebellion of sinful humanity through his messianic king. That's his solution. The text says that the Lord laughs. He scoffs at the wicked rulers of earth. And this isn't to say that God isn't, isn't grieved by sin or that he doesn't care. That's not what it means. But that he is unthreatened by their rebellion. Our God stands utterly unfazed, unchallenged, unrivaled in the face of the puny kings of earth then and the wicked rulers of earth today. He stands unchallenged by them. Human evil will do and can do nothing to thwart the purposes of God, ultimately. I think of what would an ant say to a boot or a minnow to a shark? And how much greater is the gap between God and the rulers of this world than a shark to a minnow? Infinitely greater. The rulers of this world can say nothing to the king of kings. The psalm instills confidence in us in that way. Thirdly, God's sovereignty over sin is demonstrated in the mission of his king. Verses 7 through 9 spell out the mission of God's king, what he came to do. In these verses, we hear the voice of this anointed one. Again, anointed means the Messiah. This anointed one that the prior verses speak about. This is the king speaking now. Before it was the father, and now it's the son. And he explains the decree of Yahweh in verse 6. The king says, I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. These verses reveal the mission of this messianic king. His mission as a son, as a savior, and as a judge. 
as a son, a savior, and a judge. We see first his mission as a son. It says there, right in verse 7, You are my son, today I have begotten you. And this is probably a familiar quote. This is quoted all over in the New Testament, this verse. At Jesus' baptism, remember that? The Father speaks from heaven and says, This is my son in whom I am well pleased. The Father says the same at the transfiguration of Jesus, and he reveals his glory. It says this in Hebrews 1, in that great opening chapter about the supremacy of Christ, and in other places. And all this is showing us his mission as the son of David, fulfilling the promise that God made to David in 2 Samuel 7. David, under the inspiration of the Spirit, wrote this psalm, knowing that he wasn't the Messiah, that he wasn't, but that one from his line would be, that he would have a son that would be the Messiah, and that the seed from his line would sit on the throne forever. He would have an eternal kingdom. We see here his mission also as the Son of God, who reveals the Father to us. He's the exact imprint of his nature. God's messenger who brings his kingdom to earth. So, verse 7 shows us the mission of the Son, and verses 8 and 9 show us his mission as a savior and a judge. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. This is Jesus declaring that he will save and gather a people for himself from every nation, tribe, and tongue. That's verse 8. And this is also Jesus declaring his ultimate authority to judge the nations and to lay the smackdown on all human wickedness. It's him declaring that. And that leads us into the final section. It leads us into verses 10 through 12 and our last point. Where we see God's sovereignty over sin as he warns the rebellious. As he warns the rebellious. Look here with me. Verses 10 through 12. Now, therefore... O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. An interesting phrase, to rejoice with trembling. Kiss the sun, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. So, Yahweh's messianic king has now been revealed and his authority has been declared. And now the Holy Spirit, through the psalmist, gives a warning and a blessing. We are told to respond rightly to this king. To serve him with fear. to pledge allegiance to him, to rejoice under his reign as king, to rejoice with trembling. I think of Amazing Grace that says, grace that taught my heart to fear 
and grace my fears relieved. Grace taught my heart to fear, sort of a similar idea, rejoicing and trembling at the same time, but grace, um, fear, grace my fears relieved. Or to be mindful of his wrath as well, and ultimately to take refuge in him. And note that there is no neutrality mentioned here. Not one human soul will remain on the fence with Christ. You are either for him or against him. And all of us should hear this warning in the psalm. These are sobering words. The wrath of Jesus Christ is not to be ignored. He's the creator of the universe. He created you and me. He came to earth conquering sin and death, and he's coming back with a sword to judge the living and the dead. Not one sin will be hidden from him. In Revelation 6, it says that the wicked on the last day will be crying for rocks to come down and crush them, that they might be hidden from the wrath of the Lamb. Is not to be ignored. But even in the midst of this mortal warning, we see hope. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. So I'd ask all of us, how are you currently responding to this king? Are you ignoring him? Are you stiff-arming him in pride? Are you serving him with fear and reverence? Is your life marked by allegiance to him, knowing that allegiance to anything else is not only futile, but perilous? Do you worship him and honor him as he deserves? Are you taking refuge in him or the things of this world? I want to plead with you today to pay homage to this king, rightly. To kiss the sun. To honor him in your heart. To serve him with gladness. To seek refuge in him today. Because he is in control and nothing else is a refuge compared to Christ the King. This psalm reminds me of the Chronicles of Narnia. I'm sure many of us are familiar with the character Aslan. When he's introduced in the story, the lion Aslan, of course, representing Jesus. This is when he's introduced. Aslan is a lion, the lion, the great lion. Oh, said Susan, I thought that he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. There's a beaver talking in the story. Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. That should be our enduring thought 
of Jesus from this psalm. He's not safe. He is not safe for those in rebellion to him. But for those who take refuge in him, he is safe. He's a good king. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Let's pray. Father, I ask that you would reveal to us in any ways in which we are are stiff-arming you in our own life, that we aren't honoring you as you deserve in any way that we are trying to, to cast off your cords from us. I pray you convict us this morning and comfort us that you as the king of our life is the best place we can be. I pray we would take refuge in you and you alone. In Jesus' name, amen.